We tend to react badly to certain words in ways that those poor words probably don't deserve. Negative is one such word. It's kind of our default assumption that anything negative must be bad. But we remind ourselves that not all positives are good, nor are all no's unwanted. Or to say it another way, not all negatives are negative. In fact, some negatives are preferable. You'll recall the, the uh, 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 apocryphal story about George Washington. I cannot tell a lie. That's a pretty good negative. And the classic is the medical test for disease, right? Nobody celebrates a positive test result. The negative is good and preferable. This summer, we're taking a look at the negative attributes of God. We're looking at the things he cannot do or be, what God is unable to do. The title of our sermon series this summer is God Can't Do That. This morning, we're going to consider God Can't Change. Malachi 3, verse 6 Open your Bibles to Malachi 3, verse 6. It's on page 954, if you're using that pew Bible in the rack in front of you there. So we've moved in the last three weeks from the first book of the Old Testament to the first book of the New Testament. Now we're moving to the last book of the Old Testament. Pattern holds. We'll be in Revelation next week. I don't remember where we are next week. So Malachi 3, verse 6. Here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, We believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. And so if you want to know how to think and how to live, then you have to know this book. Hear now the inerrant word of God. Malachi 3.6 For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world of change, changing jobs, changing families, changing laws, changing politics, changing climate, changing nations, changing attitudes. It has been said that in our lives, the only constant will be change, but we know that is not true. You are the constant one. You are the unchanging one. You are our stable reference point, our reliable foundation, the solid rock upon which we can build our lives. We long for the sure thing, for the fixed entity. Show us yourself today that we might cling to you as our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Change is here to stay. That's an old business school adage. And in business, it's true, is it not? What if IBM were still making punch cards? What if Netflix was still mailing you the DVDs? What if Kodak insisted on using film? Oh, wait, they did. And where is Kodak today? Change is here to stay. I watched a documentary about Ulysses S. Grant, and one of the things the historians kept harping on was his ability to accept change. 
When the plan didn't go, when the battle didn't go as the plan called for, his generals would cry for retreat. But General Grant would stand there, assess the changes, change his plan, and press the battle. Spoiler alert, Grant won. Our ability to accept change is important. But as real as change is, it can be exhausting at times. We long for a chance to rest upon anything that, is, that does not change, that is fixed. I suspect that many of us hold to certain political views, not because we've really assessed them to be right or wrong, but because they're what we've always known, and we long for that consistency. We don't always like change. But if you stop and think about it, this world was created for change. Think back to our lessons from a couple of years ago at the beginning of the book of Genesis. The final world, described in places like Isaiah, Zechariah, Revelation, the final world is one full of people, full of cities, full of wealth. But that's not how it was created. God made two people, and he told them to change the world by subduing it and filling it. This world was created to be a changing world. Political progressives are not wrong on that point. Things need to change. The direction of that change, that's another discussion and another topic. But the world cannot, it is not supposed to remain the same. In the final analysis, the creation mandates were issued, ironically, so that we would become more like God, making people and ruling over the earth. Ironically, we need to change to become like the unchanging one. Theologians have historically referred to God's unchanging nature as his immutability. Immutability. A mutation is a change, so to be immutable means there is no change. God's immutability means that his, he is unchangeable in his essence, in his nature, and in his perfections. He is unchangeable in his purposes and plans. He is unchangeable in his eternal decree. Of all of God's attributes, this might be the one that is hardest for us to relate to in some ways. You know, if you and I were to begin to describe the perfect human being, we would describe someone who was constantly learning, constantly growing, constantly maturing, constantly getting wiser. God is none of those things. Of course, it's because he's not a human being. But God cannot learn. He is all-knowing. God does not grow in wisdom. He is all-wise. God does not change. One uh, 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 Puritan preacher put it this way, God is without any new nature, new thought, new will, new purpose, or new place. Our lives are constantly enhanced by the new. We visit new restaurants. We try a new destination on vacation. We take a risk and do something new. We strive for the new because we hope it will be an improvement. And in fact, in our culture, those two words are almost inseparable, are they not? New and improved. 
But it's because God cannot be improved that he cannot change. God is without any new nature, new thought, new will, new purpose, or new place. God is the unchanging one precisely because he is the perfect one. He has no need of improvement and therefore does not improve. And being perfect in his perfection, he cannot deteriorate, slip, or slide, or in any way decrease any attribute. He has every good attribute to the fullest possible extent and is therefore unchanging. And he will never lose any of those attributes and he will never take on any negative attributes. God, you will not wake up one day and find God to be what he was not yesterday. In other words, the God who graciously forgives sins today will continue to be the God who graciously forgives sins tomorrow. There is no sin that you can commit that will cause God to change his mind about you. The the, the bedrock, and I'm sorry to undo the discussion of eternal security in Hebrews 6. You still got to wrestle with Hebrews 6. It's a legitimate passage. But the bedrock of our eternal security is not whether or not we hold to faith, It's whether or not we have an unchanging God who holds to us. You see, God is utterly unchanging. Now, this has some serious implications for our relationship to God. For starters, it has to affect how we worship. God's immutability ought to change the way we think. Well, I guess it should change it if wrong view of worship. In other words, we should not be coming to worship with the idea that by coming here, we're going to change God. We touched on this last week, how the pagans would worship their gods. Like the Greeks, for example, their gods were so capricious. They could be anything on any day. They could have any mood swing. They could have any attitude. And so they went to worship with the idea that they were going to bribe their gods, cajole their gods, convince their gods. That is not why we are here. If you are here in hopes of impressing God or or making him feel guilty or in some way trying to get him to change, that is not what we do here. We do not worship in hopes of changing God. Consider the account of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. You remember that ancient TV show, Israel's Got Prophets? Elijah and Baal get on top, uh, the prophets of Baal get on top of the mountain. They're in front of the king and queen, and they put on a show to see whose God is the real God. And the prophets of Baal, as you may recall, they spend the whole day dancing before Baal. They, They cry out to him. They yell to him. They plead with him. They beg him. They start slashing their own bodies, cutting themselves, hoping that that sort of dedication will move Baal to act. And as you may recall, at the end of the day, the altar to Baal, there was no fire sent down from heaven. The sacrifice remained raw, uncooked, sitting atop the wood. Our worship must never be like that. And in fact, it's really quite the opposite. We don't worship to change God. We worship because God is unchanging. 
God's attributes ought to spur our worship. Remember near the end of the book of Job, when God finally gets a little fed up with Job's demands, and he comes down in chapters 38, 39, and 40, and God comes down and talks to Job and kind of humbles Job a little bit? Do you remember how he does it? He doesn't say to Job, you're a sinner. He doesn't even bring up Job's sinfulness. He doesn't bring up Job's fallenness. He doesn't bring up Job's brokenness. What does he do? He rattles off his own attributes. He goes on about who he is as God. And Job goes, wow, I did not know. I did not understand. I did not have a right view of these things. And Job, who was already a faithful, godly man, becomes even a better worshiper. We don't worship to change God. We look at the unchanging God and say he is worthy of our worship. Because our God cannot change, because he, there is no risk that he would ever lose any good quality or increase in any bad quality, uh, because of this, we grow, we change for the better, and become more like him, though he is not changing. That begs kind of a follow-up question, though, does it not? If we are not here to manipulate God then why do we pray? Isn't the whole point of prayer to get God to do something we want from him? Some of you are probably thinking to yourself right now, Pastor, go back and finish the Elijah story. It'll show you that God does change and that we can change him. So I will finish that story. You'll recall what happened after the prophets of Baal finally gave up at their turn. Elijah prayed, and God sent fire from heaven, and it consumed the sacrifice on the altar. It consumed the wood below that sacrifice. It consumed the rocks out of which the altar was built and all the water that had been poured on top of it. God did, in fact, answer Elijah's prayer. And you're inclined to go, well, see, pastor, there it is. Elijah prayed and God acted. The situation changed because Elijah prayed. And I won't dispute that. I agree with you. The situation changed. God did not. God's plans and purposes were not changed in that moment. And think about the bigger picture of Scripture. If prayer were this magic wand that made God do whatever we wanted him to do, if he was going to change his plans and purposes in any and every situation in which we prayed, then do you think the prophet Zechariah would have died a martyr? Do you think Paul would have been beaten and stoned so many times? James lost his head and Stephen was stoned to death. You don't think they prayed? Lord, please, not this. If the prayer of faithful men and women could just magically make God change every time we wanted, then the lions in the ancient Roman Colosseum would have been a lot thinner. Jesus himself, and about this we are not speculating, we have a record of witnesses. Jesus himself prayed, Father, please take this cup from me. So how do we think about prayer in light of an immutable, unchanging God? 
Well, that same Puritan I referenced earlier, he said something interesting on this question. He said it this way. Prayer, and I'm using his older English style here, prayer doth not desire any change in God, but is offered to God that he would confer those things which he hath immutably willed to communicate. But he willed them not without prayer as the means of bestowing them. Let me see if I can unpack that. In other words, God immutably planned that his immutable will would be carried out through prayer. Prayer is the activity that puts God's plans into motion, and he willed it to be so. So, pastor, are you saying that the only thing prayer accomplishes is God doing what he is going to do anyway? Now, wait a minute. You're putting words in my mouth at that point. Or I guess I'm putting words in your mouth to put in my mouth. Let me try another way. There was a car commercial many years ago. I think it was a Mazda commercial. It opened up with a young boy sitting in his car seat, and he had in front of him a plastic toy dashboard, like a Fisher-Price-type dashboard. And he's turning the wheel, and he's shifting, and he's pushing buttons. And then every time he did something on his dashboard, the camera jumped back, and the car did it. So he turned to the right, and you saw the car, boom, to the right. He downshifted, and the needle in the tachometer spiked. The car was doing everything he was doing on his toy dashboard. Eventually, the commercial panned back. Probably he did it faster than I can even tell the story. The commercial panned back so that you could see the father in the front seat with an eye in the rearview mirror watching the boy. And when the boy turned right, the dad turned right. When the boy downshifted, the dad downshifted. So I ask you, who was in control of that car? Who was in control of that car? And you could say, well, the boy really isn't, because his steering wheel is kind of a plastic steering wheel, but the car is going where he wants it to go. And he's having a good time. He's enjoying the ride. So now imagine for a moment, imagine if that boy says, well, I'm not going to pray anymore because I'm not really the one in control. Well, if the boy did that, guess what? The ride is going to be a lot less enjoyable. Yes, God is unchanging and immutable, but that does not negate the beauty of prayer. Prayer is the relationship with the Father by which you get to be a part of all the wonderful things he is doing. Prayer is your backseat driving console. Now, would that father let the boy steer the car into a ravine? Does God occasionally say no to your prayers? But in so, uh, but, but in so much as your heavenly father looks out, looks into that review mirror and sees you praying and steering things in a good way, the car of your life goes in that way. Ironically, so long as the boy keeps steering, the ride continues to be a blast. It's only when he pouts 
about the question of who's really in control, but the fun is taken out of it, that the joy is gone. It's when he loses his willingness to just accept and work with God, to be a part of the plan God ordained. So pray. Enjoy the ride. Or as Mazda would have said it, zoom, zoom. God is immutable. He is unchanging in his essence, his attributes, his purposes, and his plans. As a result, we should not imagine that our worship manipulates God. He can't change. Rather, our worship is a time to be in awe of his perfection, his unchanging nature. And yet, God has unchangeably ordained that our prayers are a part of the way things unfold. There are a lot of other important implications of God's immutability, of his unchanging nature. I want to look at just one more this morning. I'll start with the technical term. Sometimes in some systematic theologies, these two are set apart as separate sections. Most often, they're combined, as I'm doing this morning. The technical term is this. God is impassable. Now, I know we just finished a car illustration, so that sounds like if you see God on the highway, you can't get by him. But that's not what it means, that he is impassable. The root there is the word passion. God does not have passions, at least not in the sense that we have them. God does not have emotional ups and downs, at least not in the sense that we have them. And I know already, most of you, your heads are spinning and you're full of objections, thinking about all those Bible verses that speak of God's anger, his jealousy, his compassion. Come on, pastor, the word right there, passion. Let me explain. So let me start with, this is a sermon series set in the negative, the things God can't do. So let me start with the negative, but I think we will come back around to your question. Because God cannot change, he cannot emote, at least not in the way that we do. Think about it. Your emotions are, almost by definition, changes to your being, to your mood, to your attitude. Etc. God cannot undergo that sort of change because he is immutable, and therefore he is also necessarily impassable. But God is not a stoic. Don't think of it as that ancient Greek philosophy of stoicism. Stoics, they choose to respond to life with temperate acceptance so that their interactions with either pleasure or pain come across as the same. Stoics make no outward distinction between how they respond to either the good or the bad, and so they appear unchangeable. God is unchangeable. God is impassable. It's not that he's putting on a front of stoicism. He is inherently different. And God chooses, or God is different from the Stoics in some other ways. In addition to his inherent difference, God does not emote the way we do because God does not respond or react in the way that we do. You think about this. 
We react, we respond because things come upon us in the moment. But God does not live in the moment. He created those moments and he works through moments, but God transcends time. There is no moment that has not always been in God's reality. Things happen to you and you respond or react and there are emotions involved. But things don't happen to God in that sense. In that moment, he has always been what he is toward it. Yes, God is angry at certain things. But he's always been angry at that event in history. He did not change in his emotions. Yes, God is compassionate, but he has always been compassionate toward those people in that situation. Yes, God is loving, but his love is a constant, not something that comes or goes based on the moments. We, our emotions, are reactions to the moment. God's are not. Which kind of brings us to another important uh, uh, distinction here. The Stoics give every outward appearance of being unchangeable when in fact they are processing and thinking and dealing with inside their head what's going on. They really do change because of the events. God is the other way around. He's bringing about, affecting the changes in our world and is in control of them from the get-go and therefore not responding or reacting or changed by them. How does Isaiah put it? God is the one who knows the end from the beginning. He has it always planned out. He is impassable. Now, You may be sitting here at this moment going, okay, I get that. That makes some sense. I guess I can see, Pastor, how if God is unchanging and if he's in charge of everything and he transcends time, I guess I can see how he doesn't react emotionally, how he doesn't have the sorts of emotions that we have. But the Bible makes clear that God has all these different feelings. Consider one verse. Forget all, I mean, you guys have had all got all your verses in mind that describe the emotions of God. Just consider this one verse from Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Now listen. And by the way, the Lord your God, this is Yahweh. This is not any old God. This is the true God, the one, the God of the Bible, the God we're talking about. Yahweh your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you. By his love, he will exult over you with loud singing. One verse, six emotional descriptions of God. So how do we think about the impassibility of God in light of that sort of statement? And this is where we have been careful to say that God does not have emotions like we have them. The Bible certainly describes the emotions of God. And it certainly anthropomorphizes God so that we can connect to him and relate to him. But we've got to remember that our emotions come from outside us and affect what is inside 
so that what comes back out is affected. Many a terrible human decision has been blamed on emotion. But that doesn't apply to God. Yes, God has joy, sorrow, anger, and pleasure. Even regret is attributed to God by the Bible. But these are attitudes toward events and people which have always been part of his interaction with us. God is not affected by history. He is affecting history. God is not changed in the way he thinks or acts. The biochemistry of God's brain is not altered by the smell of fresh-cut wood, as my brain is altered, or by the sound of a baby crying, as Becky's brain would be altered. That's not how God's emotions work. You see, he transcends those things. And yet he truly is angry at sin. He truly has compassion on the downtrodden. He truly loves those whom he has called and is saving. So here's the irony. The Stoic is changed by the things that happen, but gives the appearance of being unaffected. Our God is unaffected, but gives every appearance of emotion. But it's because God's emotions, if they should even be called that, are a function of his everlasting, unchanging nature. God is impassable. He does not change with the passing emotions as we do. And so at this point, some of you, emotionally, are feeling as if God is distant, out there, beyond us, a big, cold, so what? Let that sink in a little bit. It is the transcendence of God. It is the reality that he is so far beyond us, so unlike us. You see, we forget that the cry of the angels, when they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, that cry is not simply that he is not sinful. The word holy means different. It means set apart. It means unlike So radically different, different, different is the Lord God Almighty. So unlike, unlike, unlike is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is transcendent. He is radically different than you and I are. And that has to sink in. But now you may be thinking to yourself, well, pastor, a God like that might be a God I can fear, Maybe even could be a God I could worship out of fear. But that's not a God I can adore. That's not a God I can love. It's certainly not a God I can connect with. A couple of responses to that. First, this one. It's 3.17 in the morning. And you're in the middle of one of those dreams that you're never going to recall. And the smoke detector goes off and starts screaming at you. You snap up in bed. You're foggy-minded, foggy-eyed, and you realize through the blur the house really is on fire. You grab the baby from the room next to yours, and you yell instructions to your eight-year-old. She responds in the affirmative. 
What a relief. You get down to the lawn just as the fire truck comes screaming up. You're running on adrenaline, but all is good until you look around and realize your daughter, that eight-year-old, the one who said she was going to follow you out, she isn't there. She's not on the lawn. The fire chief who's on duty that night comes to you and he asks, is everything okay? Is everyone out? And in your panic, you tell him about the missing daughter. Now, what do you want from that fire chief in that moment? Do you want a fire chief who feels what you're feeling? Do you want him to hold you? empathize with you, break down crying, and be truly distraught over your pain. For that matter, do you even want him to feel your pain as he runs into the flaming house? Do you want him emotionally wrung out? So let me ask again. Is the impassibility of God a bad thing. Over the past 50, 60, 70 years, kind of largely since World War II and the the, uh, uh, Holocaust, the impassibility of God, his, his emotions being not at all like ours, has come under heavy fire. And despite the fact that it has been the standing unanimous position of the church, the Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, for 1900 years all agreed that God does not have emotions like we have, in the last century, many have said that's not worthy of God. That's not a compassionate God. That's not a loving God. How can we relate to such God? But do we really want a God who experiences emotions as we do? Do we really want a fire chief who's going to be distraught on the front lawn of our yard when we desperately need help? And add to the mix this. What if God did act on emotion? What if God did feel what we feel? What if God wrung out emotionally over the Holocaust threw up his hands and said, literally said, to hell with the whole lot of them. So I ask you again, is an impassable God a bad thing? Or do you want a God who succumbs to emotions? But none of that, not one bit of that is meant to, to uh, dismiss the very real desire to connect with God. A, a real connection, a vibrant connection, one in which your emotions matter. Such a connection must necessarily include our emotions, for they are a real part of who we are. So here I am making the argument that God is impassable, and yet needs to be relatable. And you've got to be wondering, how are you going to worm your way out of that one, Pastor? Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, very near the end of the Bible. Hebrews 4, we're going to be looking at verses 14, 15, and 16. If you're using the Red Pew Bible, it's on page 1189. Hebrews 4, 14, 15, and 16. And keep your Bibles open because we're going to look at Hebrews 5 in a moment. 
Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So see the argument, the, we're jumping in the middle of the letter, but you see the argument the author is making. We have a certain condition. We have a great high priest. So don't let go of what we believe. Don't give up on this impassable God. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That moment that God seems too far away, too out there, too unrelatable, too transcendent, we must remember that in Christ Jesus, God has closed the gap. God the Son became one of us. He took on flesh. He joined himself to humanity for all time. The incarnation was not a thing in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. It is a reality today. Jesus was taken up into heaven in front of the witnesses of the disciples and many others bodily as a human being. Look again at Hebrews. Move down in chapter 5, verse 7. It's on the next page in the Red Pew Bible. Verse 7 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reference. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest. God is impassable. The man Jesus is not. We can speak of both the passion of the Christ and the impassibility of God because the two natures were conjoined in the one person, God the Son. The gap between our ever-changing existence and God's never-changing existence was closed in the God-man, Jesus. Son of man, son of God. When the exploration of the attributes of God make him feel unapproachable, the solution is not watering down those attributes, but exalting the name of Jesus. The solution is finding in the God-man the one who closes the gap. Because we don't rightly exalt and love the Christ, we are often tempted to change the immutable God, making him into something we might like better. And so we are reminded by our opening verse back at the beginning of the sermon. One of the great benefits and blessings of an unchanging God I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. If God changed, then our constant desire to change him could itself become the impetus for him destroying us utterly. It is ironic, isn't it? 
that we want God to change, but because he doesn't, we are saved. Come not to a God that you fashion out of emotion in the hopes that he'll feel good to you. Come instead to the God who in one sense is utterly unlike you, who is not affected by emotion and who does not change, and be in awe that he took to himself a human nature with all of its changes, all its passions, all its weaknesses. The author of Hebrews goes on to close in chapter 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will always be fully God, fully man, the one who stands in the gap between our ever-changing existence and the God who does not change. Let's pray. God, give us great hope in the reality that you do not change and therefore we are not destroyed that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and therefore the grace and kindness and love and compassion that he showed while he was on this earth still are his. And when we feel, God, that you are too far away, too out there, too other to be comprehended, let us draw near to Christ. And in him, See the one, the God-man, who closes the gap, who makes a way that we, in our finiteness, might come to you in your infinitude. We praise you in the name of this wonderful man. Amen.